Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahat Ali. And Waj, we have yet another brilliant special guest joining Democracy-ish this week. I am absolutely very excited uh, to speak with the host of The Mary Trump Show and multi-author, multi-faceted Mary Trump. Um, Mary, I don't even know where to begin, to be honest. I don't know where to start. Um, But let us start, uh, I think, with the seventh hearing that we all watched this week. Um, There were multiple bombshells that were dropped, and I know that we will get into a host of them. But um, you were watching live on your show with uh, a bunch of some of my favorite friends and uh, and analysts. And I want to start off with asking, what were the things that stood out to you uh, that really were just like, oh, my God, no, he couldn't possibly have. Well, I have to be honest, and Danielle, it's it's great to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. Um, I I've been saying for a long time that nothing Donald does surprises me, uh, and and I think it shouldn't surprise anybody else at this point. Um, but one one thing about yesterday's hearing that I thought was interesting was the change in tone. Uh, it was more restrained. It was a little bit more cerebral. Um, especially in the first half when there were no live witnesses. Uh, But I thought it was a kind of nice, they kind of took the temperature down a little bit and just sort of got into the nuts and bolts, uh, which I think was really effective. Um, The only thing that surprised me, honestly, was when Representative Jamie Raskin, whom, as I said yesterday, nobody could possibly admire more than I admire him. Honestly. Uh, Right? Uh, For... So many reasons. Um, He spoke about um, whether that Donald was leading the Republican Party down this particular path, to which I say, no, no, they are so far gone that and it's never been about him anyway, in some sense. He's a symptom of a longstanding disease that's been allowed to metastasize and they don't need him anymore. They are down that path. So that was a, a sort of surprising misstep from Representative Raskin. And 
And I guess the only other thing that, again, not not really sh shocking, but uh, surprising on its face, although it does make sense if you put it in the right context, was the fact that Donald allegedly directly contacted a witness, uh, presumably to uh, temper with that witness. Um, so I th one, I thought it was kind of funny. Um, but uh, two, I think it suggests that Donald, on the one hand, is quite terrified, and two, is entirely overestimating his ability to get out of the situation. And I think the what the what that particular hearing revealed is what most of us knew, but it's still sobering and shocking that this violence was premeditated. From what we mm -hmm. saw from the text messages from Ali Alexander, from the video of Alex Jones, from Steve Bannon, from you know the right-wing MAGA swamp, that these folks were in some part coordinating with Trump's inner circle, that they were tipped off that January 6th was going to be the day, that folks like the Oath Keeper, a right-wing militia group, were preparing for violence, that the, the, the Proud Boys were there. They kept saying 1776. One of the uh, former spokesmen of the Oath Keepers gave a testimony, and he said that's a violent militia that was preparing for an armed revolution. These people came there for a fight. They came there for a violent insurrection. So it wasn't a spontaneous day of. And I think that debunks, oftentimes we get, uh, you know, the, the, the zone is flooded with bullshit. Uh, Steve Bannon, to quote him, unfortunately. And it it kind of undercuts that right-wing talking point that there was no violence there. This was, there was just a bunch of folks there who were just, you know, it was like angry and upset. No, there was, they came with violent intent and Donald knew about it and seemed to advance it and premeditate it. I think that's huge. And, and it kind of takes me, you know, moving forward, Mary, You've written two books, best-selling books. The first book that you wrote was kind of the psychology of Donald, your uncle. We can't always choose who we're related to. That's uh, true. Do you we never? Can, actually. <laughs> you know, if and I want to connect it to what you were saying, where the Republican Party is. It seems to me that this man was committed to bringing down democracy by any means necessary, even violence to stay in power. And is the Republican Party now right there with him? Absolutely, they are. Um, I've, I've been saying for a long time now, especially when asked before the 2020 election, how bad can things get? I'm like, there's no bottom here, mm -hmm. especially if Donald loses. He's never going to concede. You have no idea how bad things are going to get. We're still we're still there. Um, now, obviously, if he's somehow contained, that solves the problem. But if he's not, we are in no position to understand just how much worse it can be. And one of the one of the interesting things we learned yesterday, besides how premeditated it was, how how many people knew, including those witnesses who are now claiming they were on team normal, which is a sorry, I was about to swear, which is a joke. You could swear, you could swear here. Daniel okay, swears all the time. Fucking all joke. The time. <laughs> because I call them team complicit just because they, you know, thought right. Sidney Powell was crazy. Well, no kidding. Um, so there's nothing normal about their behavior either. Uh, it's the fact that Donald actually, in, in a rare move for him, was able to unite the Proud Boys with the Oath Keepers, two organizations that have never united to do anything before. So... Um, it just shows you how how many people are willing 
for many different reasons, I suppose, but Republicans, simply because they want power, are willing to make common cause with somebody as uh, corrupt, incompetent, inept, and horrible as Donald Trump. So uh, the only end in sight is if we can start holding people accountable. And I'm pretty cynical about mm. that at the moment. I mean, you and me both. Um, I, I think that one of the things that stood out to me too is this consistent narrative that it, it's not just with the committee, but in general, when people are talking about the Republican Party being, quote, infiltrated by white supremacist organizations. And to me, infiltration would mean that you had no idea, right? Your house becomes mm. infiltrated, you know, with pests, right? You had no idea that there were cracks and breaks. This is not an infiltration. They open the fucking door. Right. This is this is not. Oh, my God, they've been taken over. Um, this is their base. And so I think that language is really important for us to use to be very consistent with not making there be a separation between the yeah. Republican Party and the Oath Keepers, the whites, the the Proud Boys and the three percenters. And so, you know, in in saying that your uncle, Donald Trump, had told them, put them on notice during the campaign when he said to stand back and to stand by. And he was asked multiple times in that, in that uh, debate, will you denounce white supremacy? And his, his response was to activate the white supremacist that he knew was on his side. And so I actually want to talk about his connection to um, and love affair with white supremacy, because this goes back to Donald Trump, the slumlord that used to demark on apartment buildings who was colored and who wasn't. Mm -hmm. So racism yep. is not anything new. But why do you think that, in your opinion, the media doesn't marry the two of these in the way that mm -hmm. they should? And they still make it seem as if, oh, my God, I was just caught off guard. Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to I want to emphasize your point. This is the Republican Party. There's there aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party uh, is a white supremacist fascist party. Uh, so it's it's a joke to say otherwise. And we're deluding ourselves if we think that there are any moderates or any sane people or any Republicans left worth uh, working with, because, you know, to claim that bipartisanship is a good thing or to try to achieve bipartisanship at this point is to make common cause with fascists and white supremacists. Mm -hmm. uh, and as, as uh, Mr. I can't remember his name, um, the guy with the, who testified yesterday, uh, Tottenhoven, something like that. Yes. Van, uh, Van, Van Tottenhoven. Thank you. Um, he, I really liked what he said. We can't, mince words. We have to be mm -hmm. direct about this. We have to use the proper language. And that is absolutely true. Um, I know you guys do that all the time and uh, turn some people off, but you know what? We need all need to get on board with what is really happening. Um, as for Donald, the media's ability to um, absorb the worst things about people like Donald and uh, do nothing with it, Right. Um, that I found that maddening in 2015 and 2016. Uh, one, because I've known him my whole life. And two, because as a New Yorker, I know just 
how terrible he was as a businessman. Uh, I, I saw, um, I, you know, my grandparents were racist. I was at their house all the time. Everybody in the family was racist. Um, we know about what he did with the exonerated five. Uh, so none of this is a secret. Uh, but we, we saw in real time that one of the reasons the media has have a blind spot is because, well, there are two reasons. One is because they hate, uh, they need to normalize everything. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a very difficult time being honest unless it's, you know, Hillary Clinton or black people, but a white man, uh, you know, they just don't understand how to present him honestly, if it's going to make white people in general look bad. And the reason for that, of course, is because uh, this is a white supremacist country that has never reckoned with its history and present uh, of white supremacy. So it isn't surprising, but it, it it explains a lot why we keep failing to make any progress along these lines. Oh, we, we experience a lot of racial flare-ups on this show. Uh, so we do have free whitewash that we give to all our guests. In case <laughs> if you want some, Danielle will send it to you in New York. Free. free. She'll send it free. Free. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, Mary, you've been very blunt about trying to warn this country about Donald Trump, his ego, uh, he, the fact that he'll go authoritarian. He went authoritarian, as we saw from this hearing. He went violent. He was going to bring it all down. Uh, you put yourself out there. And by putting yourself out there, you put a target on your back. And I'm just very curious, what has inspired you to put yourself out there in the ring as publicly as you have to take on this fight, literally against Trump, MAGA, and the Republican Party, which, as Danielle said, is now utterly synonymous? Mm -hmm. Yeah, utterly synonymous. Uh, Initially, it was very personal. Um, Again, as somebody who's known him forever and as a New Yorker, I did not believe that he could win uh, because I didn't understand how he played in the Midwest or the South. I had no idea. I'd never watched The Apprentice because I'm not a masochist. I mean, I am, but just not in that way, you know? So I didn't, I didn't get (laughs) it. Uh, And then when, I mean, I still don't believe he won legitimately in 2016, but uh, when Hillary Clinton lost, uh, I took it incredibly personally, Mm. Um, which sounds ridiculous, I suppose, but because I just knew how bad it was going to be. I knew how bad he was going to be. Um, The only thing I didn't quite realize was how bad the Republican Party was going to become um, or reveal itself to be, I should say. So uh, that was that was the impetus behind um, my working with The New York Times uh, in 2017 In 2018, I handed over about 40,000 pages of documents that helped them put together a story that revealed the lie behind, you know, Donald's claim that he was a successful self-made businessman. Um, When in fact, my grandfather over the course of Donald's lifetime gave him like $410 million. Mm. Like even I could probably be successful. Yeah, at some but point, he, and he screwed I'm it up. I'm pretty sure a potato could be successful with $410 million. And, but Donald wasn't. So there you go. <laughs> um, and then as 2020 approached, and, and this was at the height of COVID, uh, which was, you know, it's not especially in New York, but New York was, it was just 
absolutely horrific here. Um, I, I and start from the Muslim ban to Charlottesville to his uh, treatment of Black Lives Matters protesters and on and on and on. Um, it became clear that he had to be stopped. And if I could do anything to help that happen, um, and also I have a kid, you know, uh, that's that's the most important reason because for this country to head in the direction it's been heading and for me to stand by and do nothing was unthinkable. I'm not suggesting that I, I would have a lot of influence or any even, but I felt at least I had to try because people who voted for him in 2016 didn't have a lot of information. And if I could, if I could inform them about who this person was to the extent that I could, I needed to do that. You know, I'm so glad that you brought up the fact that you don't believe that he won in 2016, um, because it is something that I had said many, many times and many people have said many, many times. But of course, there was no investigation. There was no deep dive. We had the Mueller report. We had all of these things that showed us that you had help. You had foreign, you know, you had foreign uh, involvement. Right. Everybody's like, oh, turn the page, turn the page. And here we are with a six to three Supreme Court uh, that Mitch McConnell and and Donald Trump handpicked. Um, And and so I I guess here we are in this space. And I I believe that all of us, the, the three of us are in a way wanting to remain hopeful that there will be some accountability, because how do you have these series of hearings that just unveil everything that we already thought? Right. The 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 lunch plate against the wall with ketchup coming down the sides of like the people's house, the the they're not here to harm me. Move the fucking mags like all of the things that we had envisioned in our mind happening in that White House. We now have concrete evidence and multiple interviews from his own staff about what happened in that White House. And so if there is an accountability Mary, if if the DOJ decides to continue doing what it is that they have been doing, which I'm very critical of Merrick Garland and the Department what of Justice. Because, doing? <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, the fact that they were shocked by Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, a, a testimony and were like, so what have you been doing for the last 18 months? Um, but barring the Department of Justice actually acting, where do you see Trump going, you know, over the next several months as we make the long march to 2024. I believe that it is his desire to run as a scam. It's a money making scam as everything else is that he does. But if he isn't indicted and there isn't anything stopping him other than Ron DeSantis, you know, potentially coming on his heels, what do you think happens? Oh, well, uh, it's a nightmare, but I, I think I just want to take a step back for a second and, and say that, um, what worries me and Waj and I have talked about this is that Donald be held accountable, whatever that looks like, but nobody else is, you know, except maybe Johnny mm-hmm. Smith, Rudolph Giuliani, mm-hmm. whatever these, these bit players who, uh, the fact that we even have to talk about them is just another reason to hate Donald. Um, yeah, so that's a real concern. Um, but it would be something, I guess. And if 
the DOJ doesn't do anything, um, that's potentially the end of American democracy, such as it is. Uh, but at least I think after these hearings, Donald will be considerably weakened. Um, and I do think, I mean, I don't know if he's going to run it or not, but if he does, it's because he feels he needs to in order to avoid being indicted in other cases or in, in order to avoid um, having to deal with all of this civil litigation that there is against him right now. Uh, so I think uh, failing accountability for everybody who was involved, and that includes over 150 Republican Congress people. Um, I think the best case scenario is Donald is weakened, but doesn't realize it because he's incapable of that. Uh, Ron DeSantis challenges him and either weakens Donald as a general election candidate or wins. And then Donald spends the rest of his life trying to destroy Ron DeSantis. Uh, <laughs> and the whole party just kind of implodes, but I don't oh, know. That sounds nice. I that's that's, like, I, I, that's that, like the best case scenario. The best case scenario I've heard thus far. But I yeah. feel like it's like poster for aliens versus predator. You know, <laughs> they fight, we lose. Like everyone loses, right? Because it could be because De DeSantis is on his heels. The latest polls came out that show like two thirds of Americans, as a result of these hearings, like hold Trump accountable, like think he committed fraud, think it's all bullshit, think like hold him responsible for January sixth. And if it's DeSantis versus Trump. Even if Trump is held accountable, Mary, this is my concern that suppose Trump is held accountable. I, I'm also very doubtful. Just looking at the molasses pace of freaking the Justice Department and the fact that we're seeing the Fulton County DA be more aggressive, uh, Fannie Wilson, than you know, Merrick Garland, and the fact that no one cares about the illegal activity with Stormy Daniels. Remember that one? Uh, the illegal campaign crime or, or the obstruction of justice and the tax fraud. And we could go on and on and on. The rich and the powerful always somehow find a way to fail up, especially Donald Trump. But suppose he's found accountable. My fear is, is that the dissent, and we've talked about this before, DeSantis and others like Elise Stefanik realize the Trump playbook and the Trump personality wins. The base loves it. We can win with Voter suppression, gerrymandering, a little bit of cheating, but that type of Trumpian mindset, look at Lee Stefanik, complete 180 of personality, and now she's like female Trump. So yeah. even if he is held accountable, it seems that DeSantis will simply be the new avatar mm -hmm. of, of Trump, uh, yeah. but a less self-destructive one. And then what does that say? And forget the, forget the party. I want your take on this. You're, you're a psychiatrist. What does that say about America? Mm. Uh, actually, I'm a psychologist. Um, oh, sorry, sorry, you can't prescribe, but whatever, it's fine. Close enough. Unfortunately, I can't prescribe meds, um, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not a practicing psychologist anyway, so I can't even give anybody therapy. But what does it say about America? Uh, well, you know, my second book is is largely about this. It it's because to, there are two reasons. I said earlier. We've never reckoned with uh, the white supremacy. We've not only never atoned for it, uh, we barely acknowledge it, right? Because white people are so fucking fragile um, that, you know, they think if somebody talks about white privilege, they're being blamed for slavery or something. It's just embarrassing. Um, and then on the other side, you have the failures of accountability from Robert E. Lee on down. I mean, if, if Robert E. Lee wasn't somebody 
who was held to account in the, the harshest possible terms, then why should any other powerful white guy be held accountable? Because, you know, maybe people don't know this, but Robert E. Lee went on to become president of Washington University, which was la later named Washington and Lee University in his honor. He lived a very lovely life after being responsible for the deaths of 750,000 Americans in the service of continuing to enslave an entire population. I, I mean, it's just absolutely insane. And then on top of that, I mean, he never regained his citizenship, poor baby, but Gerald Ford pardoned him. Yep. So, you know, and then, and then, um, a racist just, traitor who loses wars gets statues and buildings named after him. And then Jimmy Carter pardoned Jefferson Davis. So like, right. what message does that send? Right. I mean, it's the turn the page. It's the turn the page message. It's the message that the Democrats have been sending, you know, and the Republicans have been sending since Trump descended from the escalator. It's the let's just turn the page. It will be too hard on the country for us to have responsibility and accountability of wealthy white men who do bad. Right. Yeah, look, it started with, well, it started a long time ago, but in, in terms of my lifetime, uh, Ford pardoned in Nixon was a huge mistake. Yes, he had to resign, but he was rehabilitated. Uh, so that was hardly uh, an object lesson in things not to do. And uh, George W. Bush was never held accountable. Uh, George H.W. Bush skated on Iran-Contra. Barack Obama didn't hold either the banks or uh, the torturers accountable. <laughs> and then here we are uh, with Donald. And I mean, he's done so much worse, unbelievably enough, than January 6th. Like, where's the, I know there is a committee looking into COVID, the COVID-19 response, but I mean, does anybody know that that committee exists? And if so, do they know what that committee is doing? In my view, Donald is directly responsible for the deaths yep. of over a million Americans. That's, right. That's mass murder, for God's sakes. I don't get it. I do not get this complacency. Um, I mean, I do and I don't. I, it, again, if you look at the history, it makes sense. But when, when, when the person who embodies so much that is wrong in the world and the worst of what exists in our country is the one getting a free pass. It, it is kind of infuriating. So what does it say about America? It says that we have um, never looked at ourselves. White Americans have never been forced to look at themselves in the mirror. We do not teach our children how to be American citizens. We do not teach them how the government works or why the franchise is so important. We do not teach them about uh, racism and we don't teach them about misogyny and we don't, and on and on and on and on. Uh, so like, I think three of the main things that we fail to do that we need to do is start teaching civics again, but in a way that makes being a civilian, being a voter in America mean something, not just one course when you're a junior, like it should be taught throughout a child's life. Uh, we need to start teaching critical, critical theory, sorry, critical thinking, and yes, critical race theory. <laughs> and we need to start teaching media literacy because right now, the old adage is true: uh, the the a, an um, an educated voter is in a Republican's worst nightmare. Mm. 
From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. And I think, you know, an educated citizenry is the Republicans' worst nightmare. And as a Mm -hmm. former educator, I know that for a fact. And I've said that the public education system is the biggest perpetuator of white supremacy that we have. You don't have to look at the Department of Defense. You don't have to look in any of these other places. Look at our public education system and what it is we choose not to teach. We don't teach financial literacy. We don't teach civics in a way that encourages people to vote. There is no mandatory when you're graduating and you're turning 18 that you're registering to vote and you get your diploma in, re- in return. There are so many mechanisms that we could use that we don't. And the reason is that then you would have people that are critically thinking about how to challenge a hierarchy that they are not able to benefit from. Um, and we're also know, banning books, by the way. And burning over, them. Over like, I think burning over 1,100 books have been banned in the past year. Yeah. And that counts seen- rising. That sounds like a democracy. Um, You know, Mary, one of the pushbacks that Waj and I get, you know, together and separately um, as people who do think critically, who do challenge the status quo, is that we're bringing too much attention to what this current administration isn't doing. And by virtue of that, we're going to be the reasons why democracy falls. And so I want to ask you about your opinion about those that put more emphasis on critiquing analysts whose job it is to actually analyze and distill what is happening for regular people to be able to to digest versus Mm -hmm the ire that they should have at a democratic party that is not built for this current moment. Yeah, it's a really tricky problem. Uh, And and I do think we need to walk a fine line. I I personally often don't criticize uh, the Biden administration on policy for the most part, because 
consider the alternative, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I'm always mindful of what the Biden administration inherited. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's always the context in which we need to look at some of what's happening. But that's, I mean, I literally have something called the strategy sessions, which is to help us understand what's at stake in November, what we need to do about it, what we need to push Dems to do, because to, to pretend that the Biden administration is perfect when it's not, and that a lot of things aren't happening that need to, is just to gaslight people. And um, especially those people who are suffering by the administration's inability or unwillingness to recognize how dangerous this moment is. Um, so uh, I think it's it's hard to know, like, okay, how far do we go? We don't want to demoralize people, right? Mm -hmm. But we also don't want to lie to them either. So that's that's the line I'm always trying to to figure out because um, what I think what some people don't understand is that con criticism can be constructive. And right. if you're saying to the Biden administration or, or to Democrats in general, and again, you know, there are structural issues here that also need to be recognized, you know, it's not Biden's fault or even Chuck Schumer's fault that Manchin and Cinema are horrible human beings um, who vote like Republicans much of the time. Uh, it's not Joe Biden's fault that, or, or it's not anybody's fault that the, the Senate is not a democratic institution, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But all of that aside, um, how is it bad for the Biden administration or Democrats in general to be told by constituents we need you to fight this in this way, because if you don't, that's going to demoralize the people who voted for you and who want to vote for you again. You have to give us a reason. And it's not enough because human beings, you know, um, are complicated. It's, sometimes it isn't enough to say we're better than the bad guys, <laughs> yeah. right. you know, um, and they we're are not Trump. <laughs> they, but it's it's true. Any Republican who wins will destroy this country. It will be over. If For the sure. House get, gets into Republican hands or God forbid the Senate gets into Republican hands, it's over. We do not have until 2024. However, people, especially the Democratic base, cannot continue to be taken for granted. It is right. obscene uh, and it has to change. So when the base is fighting for the for elected Democrats, the least we can expect is that elected Democrats fight for the base. Because, you know, I, I spoke with Mallory McMorrow, who's a state senator of Michigan, and a lot of the same people who voted for Donald voted for her. And when she asked them why, they said, because you're going to fight for us. Huh. Now, Donald didn't fight for anything, anybody except himself, mm -hmm. but he pretended to really well. So people believed it. All we want the Democrats to do is fight for us. I don't think that's asking too much. I don't think it's it's wrong to point that out and to be very explicit about those areas in which they're falling short. We don't we don't do that to get people to say, oh, well, then fuck Democrats. I'm voting for Republicans, which would no, be crazy. No, none of us have we, or will. We do no. that to make the Democrats better and to make our country better. Because again, as I said at the, the beginning, if you know your strategy is to make common cause with Republicans, you're doing it wrong. You need to make common cause with your base.
And we're, uh, we wish we had more time with you, Mary. I know we're wrapping up and we're probably going a little bit extra, but we've, we've sent an invite to Mallory McMorrow and she said she'd like to join us. So I'm looking forward to that. And, and also speaking about how the passion and putting the pressure works, just look at the administration's response to abortion the final two and a half weeks. They responded to their base and they respond to some of us being loud. And this will hopefully lead to people surviving and living and not being killed and hopefully we'll help them in the polls as we've seen there's been a bump. Uh, final two quick quick questions before I let you go. Mm-hmm. Suppose, this thought exercise, if Biden runs, I'm going to vote for Biden. Okay, I don't care. Uh, if Biden steps down, wh- who is the Democratic candidate that you really would love to run, number one? And the second question I have for you is what's giving you hope? Because you said you have a kid, I have three kids. What's giving you hope right now during these hopeless times? 
caring as much as she does and understanding how important it is, especially since, again, I completely ruined politics for her or Donald did, I don't know, um, is, is really heartening. And I kind of feel like if they're willing to stay in this fight, then I have no right uh, to get tired or to be defeatist about anything. So that does give me a lot of hope. We love that. Folks, thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali, and you can catch Mary Trump on The Mary Trump Show and buy her two best-selling books. The latest is called The Reckoning. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you.